Um, in case you don't know, uh, the Bible was written by a, a number of different people in a number of different continents and a number of different languages, actually, over a span of a couple thousand years. And as the Bible's penned, uh, there were a number of things that happened. And it kind of depending on where you were and where you read in the Scriptures depends on the, the segment of it. But the part that we're reading um, are the epistles. And they're basically letters that were written, uh, generally speaking, by a guy named Paul. But not all of them were written by Paul. And they were, generally speaking, written to a specific city. Um, the city that this church or this letter was written to is called Colossae. Or Colossae, if you want to be, you know... In case you ever want to out-spiritual somebody, you just take a really obvious pronunciation in the Bible and make it sound really, really Greek-sounding. Um, I saw, I heard a guy one time that pronounced Isaiah. He was like, and in the book of Izaha. I'm like, who in the world is Izaha? But like, I, when he said that, I'm like, at the same time, I'm, I'm mentally thinking. Well, mentally thinking, that's how you usually think. I was thinking, <laughs> mentally this guy is like probably 40 to 50 times smarter than me because he just called Isaiah Izaha, and I'm sure he has a very profound reason behind Izaha. And I just call him Isaiah because there's a plane going overhead, and that's what we generally call people is Isaiah, I-S-I-A. Anyways, you get what I'm saying. So, so in, 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 in this particular church, in this particular city, uh, there was a lot of stuff that was going on, and so Paul had, hadn't actually been to this city. Oftentimes he would write a letter to a city, um, to precede his, 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 his kind of showing up to say, hey, you know, this is who I am, this is what's going on, this is what I've heard. Oftentimes he would write a letter to follow up from a, a visit that he had. So if he spent, you know, some time in Tallahassee, came down for the game, hung out, started a church, preached the gospel, and then as he left, he would hear some things that were happening in a particular church, and so he would write. And from time to time, and it was kind of the, the minority of the time, he would write to a city that he had never been to. And just some things that he had heard from some people he had heard from, from kind of like a kind of early church network that they had. So he writes this letter to the church that he had never been to. And, and the reason that he's writing this letter, and the reason that that's significant, is he's writing this letter to clear up some stuff. Because what's true for them is what's true for also us, is that there was a world that believed a number of different things. There was tons of different beliefs. There was tons of different theologies. There was tons of different ideologies. There was tons of different worldviews. And everyone kind of believed something different. And what happened, there was this group of people who claimed a belief in Jesus. And we're going to talk about what that means specifically in a minute. But they claimed a belief in Jesus. But just like for any of us or for all of us, they brought the baggage of their past experiences, their past religious perspectives, their past thoughts... And they brought that into what they now viewed as Christianity. And on top of that, there were other people who said words like Izaha. And they thought we're smarter than them. And said, I know that you think it's just about Jesus, but it's about this other stuff. I know that you think that Jesus is, you know, the top, but there's also these angels that you've got to consider. I know that you think, you know, that it's just about Jesus, 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 but don't forget how you're living. Don't forget these festivals. Don't forget this and don't forget that. And so people that were smarter than them, plus their religious baggage that they brought from outside, started to become what was to them Christianity. And so Paul writes the letter of Colossians. To essentially clear up, as a Christian, what do you believe in a world where everything's believable? As a Christian, what do you believe when you can believe anything, when everyone's saying a little bit of this and a little bit of that, none of it's completely wrong, but some of it's totally wrong, but some of it just has some little twist and some little turns and some little nuances and some little asterisks to what would normally be a mainstream belief. And so Paul says, okay, let me just, let me just pare this down. I'm not going to get into all the details. I'm not going to get into, you know, the, this isn't a, 
a class on, you know, the proof of Jesus as a person, the proof of the resurrection, the proof of the miracles, because here's why. They had that stuff. They had seen that stuff. In the same way that no one would have to prove to you that September 11th happened because you were alive. Most, yeah, you should be. If not, there's a kid's ministry in the back. But you were alive when it happened. You remember. You remember where you were. I remember I was in my, you know, senior year of high school. I was in Miss Smirnoff's class, U.S. government. I was sitting, you know, close to the back as typical. And I was sitting next to a girl named Lynn Ernest. And all of a sudden, she got a, my teacher got a call from her daughter who said, you know, you got to turn on the TV. And she turned on the TV. And sure enough, it happened. And they didn't have to prove the things that we now find ourselves having to prove in terms of religion and religiosity. What they had to prove, or what they had to pare down, was what is essential. What is essential? Because the leak from their previous thoughts and their previous worldviews were so strong that it started and continually did. And what I think is true is still continues to penetrate what is Christianity. Now, let me kind of, to, to, to not necessarily say like they're terrible people, they're, just, they're so stupid. Um, let me kind of tell you how difficult this would be for us if we were going to get this. This is a little bit of a far-off illustration, so just go with me. I'm, I'm going to pick some stuff that's relevant to me, and you can kind of play along and pick your favorite thing. But basically what this would be like, okay? The old way of thinking was that you would behave your way into God's good graces. You would, you know, go all to the right festivals. You would perform all the right morality. You would pray at the right times, not pray at the wrong times. You would, you know, treat your neighbor right. You would do all these specific moral things. You would do all these specific religious festival things. And inevitably, at some point, you were going to screw it up. And so when you screwed it up, you had to make a sacrifice. And you would sacrifice a lamb. You would sacrifice a goat. You know, sometimes you'd say, you know, if you really screwed it up, you'd sacrifice something big. If you just kind of messed it up, you'd a little chicken or something like that. But you would make these sacrifices, and the sacrifices correlated to what you did. And all of a sudden, Jesus came on the scene and said, let me just tell you, the sacrifice, the final sacrifice, because of the fact that you sinned, because of the fact that God's perfect, because of the fact that God's perfect and you're a sinful human being, you are fundamentally incompatible with God. Consequently, there had to be some type of a sacrifice made to make you compatible with God. That's the central belief, by the way, of all religion. All religion is founded on the thought process of how do you, or how do, and this is not a Christian-specific thought, how do you find yourself in God's good graces because you're fundamentally incompatible with God? How do you find yourself in God's good graces? So the answer became through this system of sacrifices. And Jesus showed up and said, hey, I'm the final sacrifice. The belief is that God sent his one and only son who was perfect to die, to wipe away the sins of the world, that anyone who professed their faith and their belief in him, that it wasn't about what you did and you didn't do. It wasn't about the festivals that you went to. It wasn't about how many times you went to church or, you know, if you sung in the choir or if you were in handbells when you were little, you know. I've got like 30 stories about handbell choirs that just get me off on tangents. But, you know, it wasn't about that. And all of a sudden, it was just simply about a faith in Christ. Now, this was so difficult for them because they had always been about performance. So this is kind of like what it would be for us. Now, I, I, this isn't a perfect example, so, you know, criticize me later. Um So this would be like, okay, let, now this is, again, this is weird. If Jesus came back tomorrow... So start one, that's a little bit crazy of a thought. But if Jesus came back tomorrow and said, okay, I know I died for your sins, but there's a new covenant, there's a new deal, there's a new arrangement, and I know it was simply before by faith, 
And the way you acted on that faith is you had a relationship with God. But here's how it works now. You've got to eat Zaxby's once a week. That would be a wonderful covenant. We'll start with that one. And that might sound silly, but if Jesus was serious and said, okay, here's how you do it. You've got to eat a kicking chicken sandwich meal, minus the kicking sauce, add the Zach sauce. And you've got to do that every single week. And week in and week out, Monday, Tuesday, whatever your day is, but once a week, once every seven days, you've got to eat Zaxby's. Inevitably, there would be some of us that would be like, well, what about Jesus? You know what I'm saying? It's so deeply ingrained because in the theology of our past 2,000 years, it's been about Jesus, 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 and the monotheistic Judeo-Christian, mostly Christian in that thought, thought about Jesus. And now it's about Zaxby's. That'd be tough. In the same way, when they said it was about this system of sacrifices, and the final sacrifices has been made, and now it's about faith, it was tough. And so Paul had to write to clear everything up. Or a lot of things up. In a world where tons of different ideas were believable. Now specifically, he's going to talk this morning, and, and he's going to talk about what I think is, for us, maybe the most difficult things to let go of. And that is what we've kind of already covered. Is how your behavior... Your attendance, maybe, or your morality impacts or influences, qualifies or disqualifies your relationship with God. So before we kind of hop in or before we kind of get to all that, let's, let's read over a couple things. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. <laughs> That's Phil in the kids' ministry. So we start Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, and he talks about being alive in Christ. So he says, so therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, and that's, that's significant because he's talking to Christians. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So I want you to do this, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it, verse 8, so this is kind of where he wants to say, all right, let me, let me drill down on some issues. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition. Now, the human tradition was, in, in, for them, they had a strong Jewish um, kind of influence in their day and in their culture because originally Christianity was a little Jew- Jewish um, spin-off cult. And so they had tons of Jewish, and when he says the, the human tradition, they had this thing called the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders was essentially, you know, tons of rules, tons of regulations, tons of oughts, tons of ought-nots of things that you should do and that you shouldn't do, that should do you and you shouldn't do. And he says, okay, so there's this whole thoughts of the tradition of the elders, of things you should do and you shouldn't do. And many of you, you were raised, I was raised with kind of that same type thing. You know, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. You know, I don't, I don't know the family that you were brought up in, but my family brought up in, my dad most times wasn't dad, it was sir. Anybody have that dad? Okay, a couple of us. Your military family, specifically, you know, if I said yeah to my dad, you know, it's like, Ben, you know, somehow for some reason your dad has like stupidly bassy voice, you know, but you know, Ben, voice of God, aka dad, and you know, and if I said yeah, he would say, what? You know what I mean? Like, he just didn't say that. But we had rules. You said, sir. Um, we had life rules. You never leave your bike parked behind the Bronco because you're not going to have a bike anymore if you do that. Um, you do not leave a, a cereal bowl in the sink after you're done because two days, well, it wouldn't be two days later, like an afternoon later, you know, you just, people fly off the handle for cereal bowls, you know. There's all kinds of f- rules in the Kemper family. 
And similar to them, they had rules that they, you know, lived their life by. And Paul says, or Paul's talking, he says, okay, so there's, some, so there's, there's some tradition, there's some backstory, there's some history going on in this whole thing. He says, so, but I don't want you to be taken captive by that according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now that doesn't mean like, you know, earth, wind, and fire. They, had, they, they attributed deity-ness or God-likeness to a lot of the, you know, the, the, the sun and the moon. So he says, okay, I don't want you to be taken captive by those philosophies. And not according to Christ. And by the way, in verse 13, let me just kind of remind you what this whole Christ thing is about. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive with him, having forgiven all of us our trespasses. So he says, okay, so let me just remind you before we kind of move on. Let me remind you of what we believe. And this is what we believe. That God sent his son Jesus. And he's going to say this in a second. That God sent his son Jesus, and when he sent his son Jesus, he wiped away all our sin. But he didn't just make us, you know, sinners that are now reconciled to God. He came to make dead people alive. Now, let me just tell you, that's a huge difference. Because many of us view God, many of us view Christianity in a way that it's like, okay, well, I get forgiveness of sins, but my life sucks after And by that, not in a way, you know, peace and joy and all like little fluffy things. But I'm not going to have any social life. I'm not going to have any fun. I would become a Christian, but I mean, that just sounds so terrible. That sounds so boring. That sounds so... It says, no, 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 no. If that's what you've seen, let me just tell you, they're not doing it right. Because I didn't just come to make incompatible people compatible. That was a big part of it. But I came to make dead people alive. I came to give life. When you become a Christian, if you really experience the love of God, if you really experience the transformative power of God, all of a sudden inside you feel for the first time alive. He says, okay. So he forgave us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over him or over them. And in, in, in this he just says, come on. This, this, this is what we all agree to. This is what we believe. Now, if you're not a Christian, this you know, isn't necessarily you. You're, you're investigating this part. But he says, this is, this is the belief. That you had debts. That you had transgressions. And that in a legal transactional way, you had a debt that you couldn't pay. And Jesus paid that debt. God paid that debt when his son Jesus was nailed to the cross. And he triumphed over the incompatibility in the sin that ensnared us. And then he says, Therefore, because that's how it is, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now, here's, here's where we're going this morning. For many of us as Christians, or for many of us as people who are investigating the thoughts and the beliefs of Christianity, one of the central errors that I think that happens in our ideology and our theology is that we need to perform our way into God's good graces. 
that by the things that we do and by the things that we don't do, we can somehow attain a sense of righteousness, of a right standing with God, or of salvation. That's part of it. But I also think there's something that's even a little bit more deeply ingrained. And I think the part that's a little bit more deeply ingrained is the part that says, if you become a Christian, if you really consider Christianity, or if you are a, you know, a Christian at some point in your life, you become that, you make that decision, that there's this very strict, very rigid framework of the things that you can do and that you can't do, the things that you can do and that you can't do. And I've talked to many people who have considered Christianity and their primary argument or thought against it isn't even a cerebral one. It's just, to be honest, I don't think I could do that because that just sounds really difficult. It sounds really tough. And honestly, it sounds really boring. And Paul in this, and this is, this is phenomenal, this is incredible. Paul in this says, hey, there's a lot of made up crap out there. There's a lot of made-up crap that a lot of religious people try to do to hold you accountable to something that God never meant for you to be held accountable to. There's a lot of things, there's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of regulations. And let me tell you, the church is terribly notorious for imposing outside, unbiblical regulations on people and considering them unrighteous when they don't even keep something that God didn't expect them to keep. Did you know, this, 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 you might not believe this, this is going to sound stupid. You know when forks were invented? Well, I don't know when forks were invented. I don't know when forks were invented. But I know the church's reaction. Did you know that when forks were invented, the church went nuts? And that sounds silly now because we all eat forks. In fact, we stir our coffee with forks, which probably isn't the best use of a fork, but we still use forks. The church's reaction to forks, no lie. This is church history. The church's reactions to fork were that fork, forks were heathenistic activities and heathenistic tools because God gave you fingers to eat with and you ought to eat with your fingers so why would you use a fork because that's taking something that God meant away (laughs) that's stupid you know what I'm saying and then sometimes you know kind of that, that sounds like kind of an ancient context you know it's that and this is this is maybe silly that you know we have all kinds of thoughts. Christians, if you're going to be a Christian, you can't dance. You know, you can't stanky leg. You know, Some of you are phenomenal stanky leggers. Ask Devin Lynn. She will show you afterwards her. Anyways, it was this thought, you know, Christian, Christians can't dance. Christians can't dance. And, and then they all thought that was silly. And then it was, you know, Christians, um, you know, you can't listen to rock and roll music. That, that's, that's the devil's music, you know. And then we started making churches that were based around rock and roll music. And that kind of went topsy-turvy on us. And there's still tons of them. You, you know some of them. These are the words that Christians can't use. These are the words that Christians can use. Big one for, for, for a lot of you. Christians can't drink. Christians can't have any alcohol. You know what the silly thing about that is? You know, if you're involved in it, if you're a church person, you probably know this. If you don't, then you might not know. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Now, when he turned water into wine, he turned about six of these, like, they weren't, I wouldn't say kegs, but essentially that's what they were. They were like these kegs. And you kind of, you know, have this view that Jesus turned water into wine, so that like, everybody got like a half a glass. He's like, I don't want you to get too carried away, you know. Here's how the story went. This is, this, is, this is in the Bible. You should read it. They were at a wedding. They were at a party. 
And they drank all the wine. Now, let's just start off with saying the host probably isn't going to start off saying, I'm not going to have enough wine to drink. We're just cheapskating this thing because weddings were a big deal. Having enough wine was a big deal. And so once all the wine was drunk at the party, there was an issue because they didn't have any left and the party was still going on. And so Jesus' mom said, Jesus, why don't you make some wine? And he said, Mom, it's not time. And then she kind of in a motherly way says, just do what he says. So Jesus, you should read this in the Bible. Jesus gets about six gallons or six not gallons six like tubs and turns all of them into wine and there was somewhere between 30 and 50 gallons in each one so somebody pulls a hey mister on jesus and he shows up with a minimum i'm telling you a minimum of 180 gallons of wine Now, if you were the savior of the world, would that be your first miracle? Because it definitely wouldn't be mine. You know what I'm saying? I'm okay, it's about this regulation. It's about this morality. And he says, come here, come here, come here, come here, come here. I'm going to have so much wine, it's going to be stupid. And some of us, you know, some of us, you know, you're, you're, you got, you, you, like me, you got a little bit of Baptist background in you. And so, you know, well, it wasn't, it wasn't the same thing. It was a little bit different thing. It's like, and then you're reading the Bible where it says, you know, don't be drunk on much wine. He didn't say be drunk on, you know, much grape juice. You can't really get drunk on grape juice. You get really hyped up, maybe a little bit of sugar in you. But it's like, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't doing Jaeger bombs. Maybe it was Mike's Hard Lemonade. But still, if you make 180 gallons of Mike's Hard Lemonade, you're going to have a tendency to drink too much if you drink too much. But Jesus said, okay, okay. That's not a rule. That's not a regulation. Now, pause. As Christians, this isn't really a part of the sermon. This is kind of more of a personal pet peeve. As Christians, we have to know the difference between a personal conviction and a biblical standard. You see what I'm saying? There's a huge difference between those two things. You might feel a conviction about drinking. You might feel a conviction about what you do. You might feel a conviction about what you say. That isn't necessarily in the Bible. But there are standards that are in the Bible. And we as Christians have to not impose our personal convictions where there is no biblical standard for that. And Paul kind of looks at this whole thing and says, let me just tell you, the reason behind the rules, the reason behind the rules, there was a very strategic reason. There was a very strategic purpose. There was a very strategic, because then you kind of get into the question, well, in the Old Testament, I mean, come on, there's entire books made, to the rule, made, made of rules. I mean, there's entire, I mean, just line after line after line. This, they're the parts that when you decide, you know, January, you're like, I'm going to read through the entire Bible. And you get to Leviticus, and you're like, I am so freaking over this. You know, you just kind of get stopped about five chapters in, and you're never going to read that stinking book again. You just kind of want to flip over, to, all right, I'm going to go to Psalms now, you know. I don't really know where this ends and where this starts, but I'm pretty sure Psalms isn't like that. So I'm just going to go to that one. Maybe you keep treading through. Then you get to the prophets, and that's a whole other story. But, you know, you get to that part, and you think, okay, well, why? Why? If it's not about these rules, why? If it's not about these regulations, why would God spend entire books of the Bible giving rule after rule after rule after rule and telling the, entire, telling the people of God in the Old Testament, have this ceremony, have this ceremony, have this ceremony, have this ceremony. If it's not about rules, if it's not about regulations, if it's not about earning your way, if it's not about attending, if it's not about these ceremonies, then why would God give so many of them? And he says... These, verse 17, all these festivals that you've done for thousands of years, all these rules that you've tried so hard to keep for thousands of years are a shadow 
of the things to come. In other words, it was foreshadowing. The reason I wanted you to listen, the reason I wanted you to attend, the reason I wanted you to celebrate, the reason I wanted you to have the festivals, the reason I wanted you to ought, not, not, isn't because that was what it was all about. Here's what I wanted you to know. I'm going to send someone at some point. And I'm going to send a Savior. And I don't want you to miss him. So it says those are a shadow. Those are foreshadowing of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. He says, let me just, let me, let me, let me just tell you why. Because that's a huge question. That's a huge question. The reason is because I didn't want you to miss Jesus when he showed up. I wanted you to know exactly why he was there. Galatians says, by the way, Paul kind of said, is going through the same argument. And in Galatians chapter 3, he summarized it. And he says, the law was basically like a schoolmaster until Christ came that we're no longer under the law anymore. He says it was basically like a schoolmaster. It taught us that we were sinners. It taught us that we are insufficient. The entire reason between all the oughts and all the ought nots is God says, okay, if you want to try to figure out if you can or you can't earn your way into my good graces, then let me just give you all the rules that you're going to have to follow. And by the way, you're going to have to be perfect. And you're not going to be perfect. So let me give you some sacrifices that you can make along the way. But the point isn't the sacrifice. The point isn't that by killing a sheep, it's actually going to do anything. Or by killing a goat, it's actually going to do anything. The point is, is someday I'm going to send my son, your Savior, and he's going to die. And all of a sudden, the sacrifices are going to make sense. Every year, the Jewish, the Jewish nation, the Israel nation, the nation of Israel, would celebrate this thing called the Passover. Many of you are familiar with the story. Moses, there was all these, you know, plagues that happened, and, you know, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, you know, Prince of Egypt style, kind of got a staff, and cool stuff happened. And eventually the last one was God's last and final plague, was there was going to be a judgment. There was going to be a judgment. And the consequence of that judgment was going to be death. But to anybody, to anybody who killed a lamb, a perfect lamb, and put its blood on the door, would miss the judgment of God. And so God said, okay, for thousands of years, every single year, I want you to remember this. And here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember that you were delivered from the judgment of God by the blood of the lamb. I want you to remember that you were delivered by, from the judgment of God. You were delivered from the death that you should have had because of the blood of the Lamb. I want you to remember, and I want you to remember, and I want you to remember, and so for tens and then hundreds, and as it turned out, thousands of years, a couple thousand years, every single year, let's celebrate, let's celebrate, let's celebrate the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, the judgment of God passed over because of the blood of the Lamb. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up one day. And it's, you know, no one knows what's going on. God hadn't spoken through a prophet in a couple hundred years. All of a sudden, everybody's just hanging out by a river getting baptized by a guy named John. Not because he had a theological belief of baptism, but because he literally just baptized people all day, all day, all day. That's all he did. And for thousands of years, they've known about the Lamb. They've known about the Lamb. They've sacrificed the Lamb. And all of a sudden, John stops the crowd and says, hey, that fella, that's the Lamb of God. 
here to take away the sin of the world. And God had the patience to say, I'm continually foreshadowing something that's going to happen. I'm continually throughout the Old Testament going to point to something that's going to happen. But the substance isn't in the foreshadowing. The substance is in Christ. So, verse 18, here's why that matters. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's really a harsh treatment of your body. In worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind and holding fast to the head, and not holding fast to the head, he's talking about Jesus there, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through which joints and ligament grows without, growing, without its growth, that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, in other words, if, if, if because of your faith in Christ isn't on your own merit, it's because of Jesus, if all that stuff really was foreshadowing, if none of it necessarily has to do with how you live and how you behave, but simply through faith in Jesus and the sacrifice that was made for you because you couldn't provide your own way, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? So why do you still live like you're dead? Why do you still live like you're confined? Why don't you just realize, why don't you just wake up that all that stuff had a purpose, but the purpose has been fulfilled if you've accepted Jesus. And now, instead of, instead of this strict regulatory system, you have freedom. And all that stuff had a purpose, but the purpose was to point to Jesus. So come on. Why do you confine yourself? Why do you beat yourself up? Why do you have the strict aestheticism? He goes on, he says, man, you just, verse 21, say, do not handle, do not taste, do not ch- touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to the human precepts and teachings, it says, they indeed, he says, well, I'm not going to completely discount it. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are in no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He says, come on. Jesus died to set you free. If Jesus died so that you could not be dead, but that you could be alive, why are you going to beat yourself up? Why are you going to make yourself oughts and ought nots? Why are you going to make yourself to follow all these rules and all these regulations and to go just go come on and on and on and on and all the things that you couldn't you couldn't do? So come on, why would you do that if Jesus already died for that? It just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. But how many of us live our lives in a way, view our relationship with God in a way that if you do too many things wrong, then God hates you. God's upset with you. Some of you because, and and, and this is a terribly unfortunate tragedy, but it just is the reality. Some of you think that you're unlovable by God because of the things that you've done. You think you're beyond the love of God. God would say, no, 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 no. 
the reason for all that stuff, the reason for the law, the reason for everything that maybe you've been through or that you've felt, the reason I set up in that system, which was probably abused in your case and somebody went overboard in your case, but let me just tell you, the reason for the system was so that you'd realize you have a need for a Savior, that you can't save yourself. There's a couple things to do with this, but I want to address kind of a, a thought for some of you that you might be thinking about at this time, which is, so God doesn't care what I do? So I can just like go ham, like go to pots and just you know, wall out, you know, do, do my thing. Let me, let me tell you, we're going to get into that next week. We're going to get into, so, so with that freedom, then what do you do? But let me, let me just tell you, let me kind of give you a spoiler alert. What you do with that is you're so thankful for it. You're so thankful for the life God's given you. You're so thankful that you don't have to earn your way and deserve your way. You set your mind on Christ. That it's not just a free pass. Let me just go nuts. Let me just go crazy. He says, no, 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 come on. If you believe in Jesus, if you've given your heart to Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, if if you've professed and placed your faith in the finished work that Jesus did on the cross, wiping away your sin, then you're going to be called to a different life yet, but it's not an obligatory. He says, come on, for this week, for this week. Is it possible? Is it possible that your entire, or maybe just part of, your religious belief system has revolved around the idea that if you discipline yourself enough, if you attend enough, if you don't and you do all the wrong things and all the right things enough, then maybe God's going to be happy with you. And Paul says, in the same way the church of the Colossians had that temptation, we have that temptation. Or Paul didn't say that, but Paul said that to them. And I would say that in the same way they have that temptation, we have that temptation. So let me just ask you. Let me just ask you. Are you tempted? Are you tempted to earn your way into God's good graces? Are you tempted to see this law that God set up to show that we would have a need for him instead of try to still just discipline and work, 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 and work, 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 and work, work, work your way into God's good graces. Because if you are, here's the tragedy. You're probably not experiencing the life that God called you to live. And you, you probably feel like he didn't take you from death to life. You thought he took you from death to jail. And that's how it feels. And the tragedy is an outside, non-believing world sees you living in jail and says, I would not want to voluntarily live in jail. I might be dead right now, but I'd rather be dead than in jail. Because you constructed this moral framework that was never meant to earn you into God's good graces. Let me ask this a different way. Do you feel free? Do you feel free? When you think about your relationship with God, when you think about your you know, religion, do you feel free? Or do you feel confined? Because if you feel confined, you're probably doing it wrong. 
So here's my, here's, here's my hope and here's my prayer. This isn't necessarily like a, so I hear this sermon and I go these, do these five things differently. I handle my finances differently. I handle my relationships this way. This is a mindset thing. This is a mindset thing that I think is so powerful can leak into every other area of your life. This is a mindset thing that I have freedom in Christ. This is a mindset thing that the price has been paid. This is a mindset thing that at the end of the day, I don't have to earn my way. I don't have to work my way. That all the point of that stuff was fulfilled in Christ. The substance was in Christ. And so you can walk out of here with freedom, with a changed mind, and potentially then a changed life. For some of you, Maybe you walked in this morning and you weren't really sure about Jesus. You weren't really sure about Christianity. You maybe didn't have any you know, significant objections. But the reality is, it just didn't seem like something you'd want to do. And if that's what you've seen, let me just tell you, my prayer for you is that you would run in to Christians who love Jesus with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength, and you see in them a freedom that you've never seen before. Inside of them, you see a peace, you see a joy, you see a love that you've never seen before. And I hope that when you see that, you just don't think that they're an interesting person. That's a different kind of person. You come to the realization at some point that that's not natural. And that's because of who Jesus is in their life. And that's the same way that Jesus can be in your life. I mean, it's simple. It's not by you deciding. It's not by you working. It's not by you trying. It's by you coming to the realization that the work has already been done in Jesus and simply accepting the sacrifice that's already been paid. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray and I ask for all of us in here, for myself, I know I have this exact same tendency that I can see all the laws, I can see all the regulations, I can see all of the different moral constructive frameworks and I can think that that's what matters. I can empty the cross of its power unintentionally to think that my behavior is what earns me my salvation. My behavior is what earns me into your good graces. And not that it's only through your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And so God, I pray for everyone in here that there would be a spirit of freedom that breaks out across our church. For everyone in here who confesses you as Lord, for everyone who's given their life, who's placed their faith their hope, and their trust in you, Jesus, and the finished work that you did on the cross, triumphing over death in your resurrection, that we would feel the freedom that you've called us to live to, that we wouldn't become captive to the philosophies that we have to earn our way into your good graces, Father, but we would become captured by the love that you displayed on the cross. I pray that every person in here who considers himself a Christian would feel freedom and not jailed. And God, I pray for everyone in here 
who's on the fence, who's investigating, who's trying to figure the whole thing out, really not sure, thousand different questions, that they can see a Christian who's different. They can see a Christian who doesn't impose outside odd moral codes. Who maybe lives a little differently. But the thing that they see is freedom. The thing that they see is the freedom that only you give worked out and lived out in their life. Father, I pray that that would be so compelling and so attractive. They would want to continue to investigate. And for anyone in here who maybe today is your day, maybe this morning is your morning, and you're at the point where you want to be free, you want to be set free from the moral code, you want to be set from the obligation, you want to be set free from trying to prove yourself to God and want to accept the free gift of salvation which was given for you and which is only taken in faith to say, Jesus, thank you for setting me free from the debt I couldn't pay when you died on the cross. Thank you for taking me from death to life. Be my Lord, be my Savior, and I give you everything because you gave everything for me. God, I pray that our lives would be so deeply impacted by the words of your scriptures that we would leave here just markably changed. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.